And thanks to Crime Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and this week I'm joined by a regular guest, but not often regular co-host, James the Editor Atkinson. James, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Matt. Mate, Prof is away uh, on family duties, and we've had a a two-week hiatus as I've been uh, in the wilds of central Queensland trekking down the Herbert River Gorge, but even though we were without Prof, we didn't want to miss another week. So uh, welcome back. Thank you for co-hosting with me, and uh, hopefully we'll muddle through without Prof. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. And for you, it must be just like old times, I guess, being uh, being in the anchor's chair. Well, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I'm glad you uh, said anchor without the uh, usual front letter um, that I, I, I get. Um, <laughs> mate, you've just finished judging at the Sydney Royal Beer Show or the Sydney... Uh... Sydney Royal Beer and Cider Show, I think. Um, so, yeah, that was started at 7 a.m. yesterday. And it was a very long day. Um, a lot of golds awarded, so I think, uh, you know, the, the feedback overall was that the quality was very high, and certainly on, on the table that I was on, we didn't see any, you know, seriously or too many uh, seriously faulty beers, which was really positive. But, um, yeah, just for me personally, just a real learning experience again, and, you know, I can't, I don't have enough respect for, I couldn't have more respect for the, you know, the sort of more experienced judges who right at the end of the day when it comes to um, judging, you know, the final championship rounds, we've still sort of got the concentration to go through all those golds because I have to say um, palate fatigue and just general fatigue had well and truly set in for me by that point. So just watching them still able to critique beers, um, I guess just, you know, as you you do more and more of it, you become more experienced. You learn not to to taste too much of of every beer because it does add up over the course of the day. Unlike wine, you have to swallow, of course. Yeah, exactly. And you're not quite at your sharp. Well, I found I wasn't at my sharpest at the end of the day. So it is, yeah, it's just a real learning experience each time and great to, um, you know, be on a table with some some brewers in Matt Hogan. Uh, Chris Sheehan was our our uh, our panel chair and oh, um, Dan Shaw from the Australian Brewery. So really good, really good brewers who I just learned heaps from. Terrific. Well, it's been uh, like there's been a couple of big stories out over the last couple of weeks uh, that we've managed to cover. You've, you've uh, been in the US as well. So uh, mate, did you get much of a chance to visit um, breweries and uh, do much while you're over in, in uh, New York and uh, North, North, Amer- North America? I did actually. I, I mean, I um, I went back to Brooklyn Brewery again, and that was, you know, really just with the the sole purpose of of um, interviewing Garrett Oliver, who'll be on the beer as a conversation uh, part of this podcast this week, which is a really great chat. Um, I mean, other than that, I kind of got around to a couple of newer, um, you know, hyped breweries in New York. Uh, one of which is um, called Other Half Brewing. Um, they're really sort of you know, I've just heard, I had heard so many people talking about you know these guys are are uh, making the best beer in New York in New, in New York State. So I was like quite excited to get there and see what they were doing. And they had 15 IPAs um, on tap when I was there, and some of them were, um, you know, just sort of beers that I don't know. I just you know like a single hop Enigma triple IPA It was like 10 percent in the Australian hop Enigma, um, and I don't know. I just didn't really think it was a very good beer at all. So, <laughs> the, 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 you know, I just it, it was just sort of like really vegetal and really all of the um, it, it wasn't distinctively Enigma, um, and I just don't know whether Enigma is really a hop that's suited to making that kind of beer anyway. So, 
it just seemed like that, you know, they just had so many different IPAs and there were some good ones. They were all on that kind of really super hazy, juicy tip, but the quality wasn't that good in the IPAs. Actually, the beers that I had that I enjoyed the most were probably, um, uh, they've sort of, they've got a further there that, um, you know, they're making some nice bread influenced beers. Ben Krause actually said that, you know, what they were doing with their further was a big, um, you know, inspiration for him to mm-hmm. put in the further for his Mayday Hills beers and, and that beer was fantastic so it's just kind of you know a bit ironic that they're best known for ipas but actually probably the beers that i like the most weren't the ipas it, it, it's interesting it's one of those things that you know like every business is going to have their own model and if they can sell 15 uh, ipas and keep the door open fantastic and it's certainly a way to create a lot of uh, social media buzz and attention but you know, it it, it 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 sounds like you're experiencing a little bit of what I experienced when I was in London in June. Um, that yeah, for all of the noise and excitement, when you actually turn up at some of these places, it can be a, sometimes a little, little bit underwhelming. Yeah, and I mean they've been one of the key breweries that's been doing this thing where they release um, a few different canned beers every Saturday and at the brewery, and it's the only place you can get them is at the brewery on Saturday. And they've had, if it's been like a kind of a unique collaboration um, that people are especially excited about, it's not uncommon for people to line up eight hours before this beer goes on sale. Um, so there's just there's just so much hype around these, and, and you know these tend to be these juicy IPAs, um, and there's just so much hype around these these canned releases of one-off um, beers, which you know I think probably some of them are good beers and some of them aren't good beers, and it just to me it's this fixation on what's new and and what's um, single batch and limited edition um, just really seems to be driving a certain element of the you know the American craft beer scene at the moment. What what is your thoughts on collaboration? Um, oh look, I think it's you know it's um, it's a bit of fun, and I think there are good collaboration beers that that are produced from time to time. And <laughs> I don't know, I don't really know what else to say about. It. I mean, Pirate Life and Ballast Point um, have just come out with with a collaboration that I think is probably a no-brainer for both parties because it gives Ballast Point sort of, you know, they leverage off Pirate Life's name, Pirate Life leverage off Ballast Point no, Point's name. So it's probably quite clever the way that those guys have done it with that new beer that's out now in Dan Murphy's. But that's it. Yeah, and again, that, that's a very big one. But again, I, I notice it like you're talking about the marketing benefits of a collaboration rather than the actual, you know, innovation uh, in the beer itself or even the, the quality of the beer itself and that seems to me what collaborations tend to be all about because I agree. You know, as, as you know we, we found a lot of breweries it takes a process of iteration before they get a recipe right um, and so it's almost by definition that a one-off collaboration beer um, is, is, is rarely going to you know find the bullseye straight away um, yeah and which again, if that's what you're entering into as a beer drinker, that's terrific. Um, but the other thing about collaborations is I, I haven't seen too many collaborations where the brewers have actually worked together um, in advance to to come up with an idea. It's sort of you know like when you do a collaboration with a band, you know the band turns up for the photo shoot. Um, and yeah, maybe you've got to this- you've got to get the other brewer in there. Um, you know, just to get a picture of them pouring some malt into, um, you know, into the, in for milling or, or, you know, dry hopping or something like that. 
um, once you've got that key photo opportunity, it's it's job done for collaboration. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> and again, you know, create a lot of excitement. But yeah, I I, I think collaborations are more about you know that's sort of the marketing benefits than any uh, beer benefits um, for, for me oh, anyway. So yeah, completely. And I think you know you would expect that most of the time a brewery's best beers are going to be in their core range because they're going to have made them over a long period of time and refined them and you know whereas any small batch uh one-off thing you know it's, it's you know mostly you'll speak to a brewer and say if we're going to make it again we would have dialed this back or we would have done this slightly differently um yeah and it's just kind of funny in the u.s at the moment that it seems to be in in this whole beer geek um among this whole beer geek element that that people are not interested in the core range they just want to drink what's new and, and what's limited edition um, that that sort of seems to be really driving the market over there, and there's quite a few breweries uh, that are that are just becoming renowned for these, as I said, these weekly uh, one-off releases of of single batch beers. Was there anything when you were in uh, you know, Brooklyn and New York that you felt that you couldn't have had if you were you know, visiting some part of Australia, for example? Um, oh, look, I had some. Yeah, I had some fantastic. Uh, beers sort of around, you know, in the sour kind of and I suppose Saisoni farmhouse style beers that, yeah, okay, you know, we I could probably find something similar in Australia, but I probably would have had to have looked a bit harder to find it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that over there, there probably is just, you know, there's so many more breweries, so there is definitely more variety out there, but you still have to kind of look for that variety just for the fact that, you know, it is just that the, the IPA just dominates everything. So look, looking at the news now, um, breaking news, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 20th of September. Um, and I'm about to, as soon as we finish recording, head off to Green Beacon in Brisbane uh, to attend the announcement that Singapore Airlines is going to be stocking green uh, a Green Beacon beer in business class for all flights out of Brisbane. And that comes hot on the heels of Cheeky Monkey announcing earlier in the week that flights out of Perth are going to uh, on Singapore Airlines are going to be uh, Cheeky Monkey's beers. What's your think thoughts about that? Uh, look, I think it's fantastic. And I hope that, um, you know, that the other airlines in, you know, Jetstar, Qantas, Virgin Australia are all looking on and thinking, wow, we might be, um, you know, we, we might be missing a trick here because Singapore Airlines have, have sort of realised that the market um, has moved moved along and consumers are demanding a bit more variety um, in the beers they get on planes. When I was over in the States uh, flying with Delta over there, um, they've always got a couple of, um, you know, I suppose not necessarily independently brewed but just definitely flavoursome craft beer options um, on their plane. I, I ordered a Sweetwater XPA and was told, oh, sorry, we don't have that on this flight. We do have Ballast Point Sculpin. So I was like, wow, okay, I'll, I'll have a 7% IPA on a flight just because it's a novel thing to be able to do being Australian. Yeah, and to me, that like there is so much in that. And it's very hard you know, when you have a limited number, you know, maybe two or three beers on your, your beer list and you've got to cater to a wide variety of people. Craft beer really needs to have a reasonable market penetration to justify having it on the plane. And we are gradually seeing that, and it's certainly like that in the States. But then again, I jumped on a Jetstar flight the other day, and I actually tweeted uh, the, the, the photo um, where they had Corona, Pure Blonde, and Great Northern. Um, and you're sort of thinking, well, you could have any one of those beers, um, and I'd defy anybody to choose those, you know, choose between those in a blind tasting. 
um, and you're really not offering a, uh, a a choice now for for Jetstar maybe that's the market they're going for and you know they're targeted but then Qantas for a long time has been advertising its you know 20 page wine list for patrons in business class and first class and yet they again just sell out their beer list to whoever gives them the the, the best deal or the you know the, the biggest incentives and it's really not catering where um, when you look at how much effort they put into marketing their beer and food programs and their chef partnerships um, that they, they really have been lagging behind so it's great for Singapore Airlines to be doing it but for me the bigger thing is that Singapore Airlines isn't just saying well we're going to put a craft beer on our list they're going to a Brisbane brewery and flights out of Brisbane are having a Brisbane brewery flights out of uh, Perth are having a Western Australian brewery and uh, flights out of New Zealand have happy days from Garage Project. And to me, that says so much about what they're trying to do. And it, it really is forward thinking because, as, as we know, wine has terroir. It has a sense of place, a sense of, you know, of what grew in the soil and uh, you know, what was given to, to, the, uh, to the wine. Beer doesn't really have that. But as I've said on the podcast before, beer does have a cultural terroir which is you know, different beer styles should evolve in concert with the climate and the culture of the place that grows it. And uh, you know, there's nothing worse than going through Brisbane Airport or Sydney Airport or Melbourne Airport and having the same Heineken, VB, you know, Bex, not that there's anything wrong with those beers, but they are largely generic and they, give, they, they, they just genericise the airport. The process of going through airports is largely generic as it is. So to have a locally, regionally produced beer out of the place you're flying, I think is a fantastic thing. Absolutely, yeah. They've obviously put a lot of thought into, you know, what they're trying to achieve. And like I said, I hope the other airlines take note. Yeah, and Green Beacon is a great choice for, for Brisbane. You know, the, Brisbane's got a couple of really strong breweries, but, you know, Green Beacon has uh, was one of the first, if not the first, to put beer in cans. I can understand that. Do you know much about the Cheeky Monkey Brewery? I haven't been over to WA for far too long, and I need to get over there and uh, check out the scene. I've been there, um, and when I visited, this would have been probably about three years ago now, um, this was when uh, Lex Poulsen, who's actually now distilling at Hippocampus, um, uh, he, he was brewing then, and the beers that they were making, these ex-little creatures, the beers they were making were fantastic. Um, I'm not just not sure what they're up to these days, but, um, yeah, if the, if the beers are anything like they were when I went there a few years ago, then I'm sure they're really solid. Terrific. Um, mate, story this week uh, that seemed to make all of the mainstream papers, uh, Ibis World, one of those companies that puts together marketing information and then sells it for uh, a mozza released a report that seemed to grab a lot of attention saying that the abs statistics showed that uh, for the first time in years uh, alcohol consumption has been up and they attributed that to craft beer and that made news around the country and a lot of people celebrating it you had a slightly different take on the figures tell us about it um, well, yeah, look, there's no denying that um, the alcohol consumption showed a modest increase um, according to the ABS stats. And really, my understanding of that is the ABS just measures how much alcohol was produced or was available in Australia, you know, via importing and production um, and gets a figure per capita of alcohol that was available for consumption so because of because people demanded it to be um, produced um, and that showed a very modest increase uh, um, and, it, and it really 
it's the first time in 10 years i think that it's that it's that it's gone up slightly but it's still you know lower than it was i think two or three years ago so really even seizing on that increase to say that it's indicative of any particular trend is just a bit opportunistic um and they looked at the fact that beer had gone up once again we don't know if that's a longer term um you know sustained reversal of this continued downward trend um and then went one further and said that you know craft beer had driven that increase and to me i just thought that didn't seem to make a lot of sense and so i just spoke to a lot of people um you know in the industry and got hold of some other data from IRI, which does, they sort of do scan data predominantly through the big retail chains. And what I kind of suspected was, yes, yeah, it was sort of borne out just that really it's some of the more mainstream, um, you know, CUB would call them contemporary brands such as Great Northern, Pure Blonde um, and Carlton Dry that have, have driven a lot of that growth as well. So I really just got to thinking that Ibis World had, um, you know, really just put out a press release attributing this, this, um, you know, this uh, consumption change to craft beer. And I don't really think that the the numbers or the, um, you know, the argument stacks up. I think that was really just about them getting, you know, getting PR traction. And it, and it worked. They, they basically <laughs> admitted that, didn't they? They basically said we, we whacked in craft beer because craft beer makes news at the moment. Pretty much, yeah. They just thought that would be the most interesting angle. Um, and the actual report itself, which I managed to get a copy of, uh, which is just called Craft Beer Production in Australia Industry Report, uh, which is about costs over a grand, I think. And it's a pretty unenlightening document for anyone who knows anything about what's happening in the industry. I mean, there were a couple of gems in there. For example, this one, craft brewers have also introduced a range of lagers, including James Squire's Sundown Lager, and Napstein Reserve Lager. Okay, which, uh, don't as, exist anymore. Well, yes, neither of them exist anymore. Napstein was deleted, um, you know, a couple of months ago, and James Squire's Sundown Lager, I don't think, has been around for years. So, yeah, I would have thought you have one job if you're going to put out research like this, if you're going to have any credibility um, and just do a bit of fact-checking. But it is, and it, yeah, I mean, that is one of the problems that, that there are so few figures in beer that... Uh, when they do come out, people want to seize on them, but it just highlights how difficult it is getting figures in the first place. Um, and I've seen, I've already seen this Ibis World um, research. You know, someone put it, it, it went in a press release last week when, um, you know, when Possible uh, announced that their new equity crowdfunding platform, Virtual, had, you know, you know, agreed with Sample Brewing in Melbourne that they were going to, they were going to sort of do the first equity crowdfunding. Uh, campaign in Australia. Um, in that press release, they quoted the Ibis World statistics as being indicative of, of you know how fast craft beer is growing. I've spoken to someone else in the industry who who sort of quoted from them as well. And so you just end up with everyone kind of relying on this erroneous data, which uh, I just think is is not ideal. Particularly if you're investing a lot of your hard earned in a new brewery, um, which we are increasingly seeing. Hey. Um, on that note, there was a little article that I that came across just on that uh, definition of craft beer and what it means, and I'll tie this into my uh, adventures last weekend in central Queensland looking at craft beer. But on Good Beer Hunting, there was an interesting article by Brian Roth, Beer's War of Wordplay, The Semantics of Craft and Quality, just sort of looking at, uh, talking about some of the things that we've talked at um, in the past about what craft means and how the independent 
um, association, the people who originally identified as being crafted, moving towards independent as a, as a catch-all, um, but also wondering what that means. And there also seems to be this feeling that the, the broader consumer um, in the beer category, not so much the deeply invested consumer, doesn't really give a shit about what independent is. Um, that cons- it, it doesn't resonate uh, as, as strongly as craft does. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, I think we have seen from some of the data out there that, um, you know, the, the the brands such as Goose Island, which have been acquired by AB InBev, are growing very strongly um, in that market. I think according to some of the data I've seen, you know, a lot stronger than some of the independent brands are. So you have to ask yourself, you know, whether that independent message that, you know, that the Brewers Association is really pushing means as much to consumers as as it does to the people who make the beer. Well, the recent uh, survey f- uh, results from the Beer Cartel guys, which uh, apparently had 17,000 respondents and uh, quite strongly showed amongst those respondents that uh, independence matters in their purchasing decision. Um, I-, I guess almost by nature, anyone who uh, is filling in that survey um, has you know seen the link through a brewery sharing it, a brewery emailing it. Um, they buy from Beer Cartel or they uh, you know, follow beer and breweries on Facebook. They're going to be invested in, in, in craft beer. And if you ask a direct question, does independence matter to you? The easy answer is yes. And it's almost you know one of those things. Um, but whether or not that their purchasing decisions or the broader beer drinkers purchasing decisions are indicative of that, I really don't know about that. I You know, I... It's one of those things that can be it can be quite hard to find out um, who makes a beer um, and you know whether people actually turn around the bottle to read who makes a beer in the bottle shop, let alone breaking out their phone to Google the uh, provenance of a beer that has craft um, you know a craft look about it. I, I just don't know. Um, I, I, I think craft has become synonymous with. It's, it's almost a marketing term like once premium meant any carton of beer over forty dollars um, craft is now becoming you know some of these uh, modern fuller flavored styles yeah exactly it's it's just uh, this uh, Irish world report as well when they they're reporting on craft beer and they've certainly taken a broad definition to, to talk about you know all of the these these uh, flavors and <clears throat> excuse me flavors and beers if you want to call them that regardless of, of ownership. I'll put that link to that note in the show notes because it is just an interesting discussion. I don't think it ends up resolving anything. Um, you know, it, it was interesting that he uh, finished with a quote from beer advocates Todd Alstrom, who were guys who re- who really uh, led the charge for you know informing beer through beer advocate. Um, but in an editorial, he uh, oh no, he opined on Twitter: "Craft needs to go away. It's meaningless and stunting the beer industry's future growth. Quality, ethics, and culture should be the focus." But again, how do you define quality, ethics, and culture, and how do you, uh, you know, protect those things from uh, people who perhaps don't have that same? And what do they mean in the first place? Just some of those great navel gazing questions of uh, of beer. Yep, absolutely. And I don't. I'm not going to pretend to have the answers to any of those questions. And an interesting one. Another interesting one. I caught up with um, Jared uh, uh, Jasper Cuppage, uh, who is the founder of Camden Town Brewery. He was in Brisbane recently. Um, and did a 
chat about uh, entrepreneurship and social media. His mum actually works for Brisbane Marketing, and I think they seized on that, and they had a bit of a chat with him in one of the uh, um, innovation hubs in, in Brisbane, and I uh, had a chat to him, and he had some very interesting things to say. I'll be reporting more fully on it. But uh, you know, Jasper famously sold out to ABI, um, his Camden Town Brewery, for £85 million last year, reportedly. Um, he wasn't wearing any uh, diamond-encrusted uh, jewellery or anything like that, so I don't know how much of that went into his pocket. But he, uh, you know, he was asked a question about whether he was a craft brewery and what it mattered, um, and, and whether it mattered. And he basically said no. He said that you know his business had always wanted to be, he wanted to be you know one of the largest lager breweries in the world, um, and that's always been his aim. And they lost over 200 tap points in the UK the day after they announced. They had staff crying. But then when I was over there in June, it didn't seem to have hurt them at all. They were everywhere. Um, so, you know, he, he's a good example of a brewer who built a business not by making triple IPAs, not by saying, you know, mainstream beer is shit, you know, fizzy yellow liquid is shit. We want to do something different. He made lagers. He just made very good lagers. And he felt that good lagers had a um, developing market um, and it seems to have worked out very, very well for him. They do have a pale ale, they do have a wit beer, so they're not just lagers. But, you know, it, it is one of those things. He, he didn't define himself based on what he wasn't. He uh, always said what he was. And um, I, I guess that's why when some of the breweries who came out shit-canning big, big breweries then sell out to those same big breweries, they get a bit of a backlash, but it doesn't seem to have hurt Jasper at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, another example, and it's slightly outside the beer space, but Starwood Distillery in Melbourne, um, you know, they they sort of sold a minority stake to a Diageo accelerator fund a couple of years ago. And I asked um, David Vitale, the, the founder of Starwood, whether they'd, there'd been any backlash uh, against them in the wake of that. And he said no, because, you know, we've always, we're called Starwood and we've always been this ambitious company that want that wants to you know that, that, that sort of is targeting um you know having a global reach for our whiskey um so people kind of expected that that was part of you know the entrepreneurial spirit of the brand and it sort of sounds like a very sp- a similar thing to to um to that of jasper if you if you if you're consistent throughout then i don't think you'll you'll get that same that same backlash as if you've kind of made you know you carved out your niche off the back of putting, you know, the mainstream guys down and then sell out to them. It's pretty hard to justify that, you know, that that about face. Yeah, and actually one of the interesting things about Camden is they also uh, two weeks ago launched uh, what I think is the first ever craft beer um, television campaign. You know, craft beer is always, with its much smaller budgets, if if any marketing budget has tended to focus on focus on social media, maybe a little bit of advertising. We've seen a number of Brisbane craft breweries take out billboard advertising, roadside advertising. But uh, Camden launched a fairly substantial um, uh, television campaign. Um, it wasn't a 30-second ad. They ran it. I think they bought the whole three-and-a-half-minute um, block uh, in one of the main Sunday night shows. Straight away drew some criticism. Even um, and I'm referencing Good Beer Hunting here. They talked about it, and the, uh, the 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 writer said, 
This is the first nationally televised ad- advertising <laughs> campaign from a modern craft brewery in the UK and further evidence that ABI is increasingly focusing on harnessing the growing demand for craft on this side of the pond. With its high production, uh, ABI is bringing Camden into a massive prime time UK and pitching the Camden brand to the mainstream in a big way. Interestingly, um, when I spoke to Jasper, uh, he, he did talk about the campaign and said ABI, this was slated before ABI came in. Jasper's father-in-law is a very famous English advertising man, Sir John Hegarty, and he developed the campaign, but there was no money uh, coming into it from ABI, apparently, and the opportunity for this advertising campaign was uh, you know, mainstream television looking at ways to make itself as more relevant as an advertising vehicle. And we've seen newspapers and television um, ad rates plummet because there are so many more places that you can advertise and get a better reach and also you record what that reach is. So apparently this was um, the television um, ad- advertised salespeople taking it to, a, to Camden as a way to make television advertising more relevant. Um, and it was a great opportunity for Camden. And Camden was a great brand because they don't see have any fear with um, being seen as being mainstream. But uh, yeah, there is a lot caught up in that. And going back to the, uh, perhaps to the Ibis World research where anything craft beer is is seen as um, being great news. And uh, we're, we're, other, we're seeing lots of industries um, leveraging off the media pool and the public pool of uh, anything craft beer, which is a really, really interesting time. Yeah, I mean, you've been to see um, Camden's new brewery and know firsthand how much money must have been tied up in that. So it's not really a surprise that ABI is going to be pretty aggressive and, and, and you know, ambitious in um, or, or Camden, um, whoever is, who's, as you said, it's not supposedly not an ABI initiative. But anyway, they, they're going to have to market their beer pretty aggressively in order to, um, to to get the demand that would justify having a brewery of that scale. Well, they, they seem to already, but the, the, the brewery of that scale was planned before the takeover. Um, so it, it's one of those things, if you look at just the sort of objective facts, TV commercials, big brewery, that sort of thing, you would think that that was all ABI money. Um, when I spoke to Jasper, the brewery was pretty much planned and financed before ABI stepped in. And there were, the only changes that they made wasn't about scale, but I think they put in x-ray machines and a few other quality control points along the way to, to keep with their requirement for um, quality control. Um, but apparently uh, Camden runs a completely different PL, profit and loss, um, has its own budgets, is pretty much an autonomous business, is the story, as you would expect them to say within the brand. But, you know, Jasper is very um, open about that. And uh, one of the reasons that he was here, or while he was here, I think he had a mate's wedding, but while he was here, he did meet with the Australian head of CUB, which uh, is the local ABI affiliate. Um, And I I did ask him the question uh, whether that meant we'd see... Camden and apparently Goose Island and Camden are going to be the global, you know, uh, ABI's plans for global craft beer brands. But Jasper's not quite ready to do that yet, and his uh, was a, his message was apparently wait. I hope they do come out here because they're you know they I don't think that we have uh, many breweries here that are making lager um, of that quality and that character 
on a on a large scale and i think it would probably be good to introduce people to to lagers of that nature well i guess the question is whether they brew them here as as they do with goose island or whether they send them over and i hope that if they do they brew them over here um, but the brand is very good the brand is very strong they were brought out by stone and wood resonates with australians i think as well just because you know it's london's sort of a second home for all of us and Jasper's also an Australian boy. Uh, you know, his his mother's family owned the Max Brewery in uh, Rockhampton. And funnily enough, I was up in Rockhampton over the weekend at a food festival and I was just walking down the, the main street and there's an old printer that's obviously been around for a long time and they had Max labels in, in the window. So he does have strong ties. It would fit quite nicely. And uh, yeah, I, I actually asked him whether or not he would uh, resurrect a couple of the, uh, the the Max recipes that also CUB um, own the intellectual property, given that they bought and closed down that brewery. So, uh, yeah, th- th- there's quite a lot there, but uh, we'll wait and see. So, anyway, mate, there's 30 minutes. Um, we want to try and keep the shows nice and tight, um, which is the feedback that we're getting. So uh, thank you very much for joining me. Now, we do have, as you foreshadowed at the start of the show, your chat with Garrett Oliver. Do you want to give us a little bit of a reason why we should uh, switch over and listen to your chat with Garrett Oliver? What did he have to say? Yeah, look, I um, I was interested to ask him about beer and food. Um, a lot of people would be familiar with his book, The, the Brewmaster's Table, which um, he wrote in 2000 or published in 2003. I was going to say it must be coming up to 15 years. Yeah, and he made a very passionate and I thought quite inspiring um case for beer to be taken more seriously at the dinner table and I thought it would be good to catch up with Garrett and ask him what progress had been made Um, and also you know off the back of that just talking about stylistic trends in the US at the moment um, and how those played into uh, beer at the dining table as well so it's a yeah really interesting chat and I hope you enjoy it. Get on over and listen to Beer as a Conversation featuring Garrett Oliver. And you can also, as ever, uh, leave reviews for us on your favourite podcasting platform, uh, iTunes or whatever. Um, it was lovely when I was up in Rockhampton. Uh, a fellow had come out from Rockhampton to uh, a lunch I was doing at Yoronga. Uh, sorry, not Yoronga. Um, Yapoon is what I was thinking of. I was thinking of Yoronga because of uh, a couple of breweries have opened up in Brisbane. And uh, David uh, made the trip out from Rockhampton to Yapoon to come to the lunch. And uh, he's a regular listener to the, the podcast. So, uh, yeah, no, it was really nice to meet him. So, uh, yeah, we might have to start thinking about doing some um, regional uh, or just even... A roadshow. Yeah, roadshow and uh, catching up with uh, some regular listeners. It was good to catch up with all of the regular listeners in Brisbane for the uh, chat with Charlie Bamforth and we might have to do that. So, uh, But anyway, that, that's the show for this week. Next week we will have Prof back, uh, back in the hosting seat and you and I will just be mere guests uh, talking about all of the beer news. But uh, James, great, great to chat and uh, welcome back from uh, overseas yourself. Thanks, mate. Good to be back. Thanks, listeners, and we'll join you next week. And we're out. (laughs) Uh, Stepping on Prof's toes there.